0: And then eventually get down to the question where it's like, okay, so Ms. O'Brien, like we're just going to have to do a a body search on you. And before we do that, we just want to know, do you have drugs on you? And I looked at the floor for so long, my ears were ringing everything. And then I just looked up at him and I said, yes.
1: Welcome to Better For It, a business podcast from The Globe and Mail about how our failures shape us. I'm your host, Tamar Durrani. My guest today is Emily O'Brien, the founder of Comeback Snacks. What you're about to hear is truly one of the wildest stories I think I've ever heard. That's because a series of some really bad judgment calls ultimately landed Emily in jail. What led to Emily's sentence genuinely feels like an episode of the Netflix show Orange is the New Black. But also, this is still very much a business story. During her period of incarceration, Emily learned firsthand about the challenges she and her fellow inmates would face in gaining employment once they were released. In fact, it was in prison that she laid the groundwork for what is now Comeback Snacks, a gourmet popcorn company designed to give former convicts a second chance. Emily and I talk about the riveting events that led to her arrest, starting a new business while fresh out of prison and the harsh realities facing the formerly incarcerated. Prepare for some humor, too. The tagline for Comeback Snacks is about as cheeky as it gets. Popcorn so good, it's criminal. So Emily, the road to starting Comeback Snacks is one of the most interesting origin stories I've encountered. But let's start by going back in time. Where were you a decade ago, both personally and professionally?
0: A decade ago, so I had my own social media company in Toronto. It was called Gather. It was a boutique social media agency where we did like photography and videos and account management for events, people, restaurants, everything like that. Um, so professionally, it was good. But personally, I was struggling as my family was going through a really tough divorce started to turn to substances to kind of cope. And, you know, I I drank in the past and all that, but like it had gotten to a point from celebration to medication. Mm. So in 2013, I met someone actually through my work and I knew that I was struggling with substances and he was actually sober. So we became pretty close and he's also a customer of mine. So not only were we close business-wise, but then we also became close in this way because I trusted him. I liked having that person around supporting me because I knew that, I had gotten to like a breaking point in terms of the extent of the substances that I was consuming. So I'd known him for about eight months. But one day he um, invited me on a trip down to St. Lucia. Mm. And this was all supposed to be just a normal vacation. But then on the third day in, he told me that he was actually in a lot of debt and had sent my passport information to these drug smuggling people down there and that I was expected to bring drugs back to Canada with him.
1: Oof. Okay. What was your reaction to that?
0: He actually asked me if I wanted to do it. And then I was just like, what the heck? Like, absolutely not. Um, And I asked him to leave. And then that night he said, oh, I was such an idiot. I'm so sorry. You know, like, let's just go on this trip. Nothing will happen. I just want to take you on a trip. And I'm so, so sorry. I was an idiot for even asking that. And so he asked me, I think, at like 1130 at night. And I was definitely out somewhere because I was like, okay, yeah, sure. And then I believed him. Mm -hmm. And... So he's like, okay, I'm going to book the tickets. The first three days were fine. The first three days we did normal things like jet skiing and going to the bar and and going to like the clubs and stuff. Like it was just a normal vacation. And then it was, it wasn't until that third day that he told me that we're not just here for fun and games and we're here to work. And then it was like less than an hour later that I had to get in the car with these people that he knew and go to this bed and breakfast slash uh, drug holding center, I guess. Like, I didn't want to do it, and that's when he started to just get more scarier. And so I was, like, at that point where I just wanted to go home. Mm -hmm. That was, like, the safest thing to do, was just go home. Because even, like, when you're in another country, you can't... Canada can't really do anything when you're you're down there. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to get caught trying to get help, basically, and put myself at even more risk, basically. Because, again, I don't know, like, the authorities, like...
1: You, you just never know who's in on it down there. Mm. So you're flying back to Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happens at Toronto Airport?
0: So I'm on my way to Canada with him and the drugs are actually on my body, not inside my body and not in my suitcase. So they they had these things. Um, they're like bike shorts, basically. with a, mm. And they had a, a pouch in the front and then a pouch in the back. And then that's where one kilogram of cocaine would go. So one in the front, one in the back. So total, we had about four kilograms on both of us. And because I was just a a wreck and just obviously very, very uncomfortable, he told me that when we landed at Pearson, that I could actually take the drugs off me, put them in my backpack and then give him my backpack. So he would be carrying them through customs. So I wouldn't actually have some on me. So then as we land and as I go to the bathroom, then it was like another bait and switch. And he was just like, oh, it's too late now. So now, not only am I bringing these drugs back, I was previously told that I could take them off at the airport to help like mitigate these the effects of like how of and the stress right mm-hmm. and he said it's too late now, so now you can really tell my body language has changed um because i I'm mad at him, I'm really mad like I was already mad, but like now I was even because hes livid. lied to
1: you every step of the way, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and then so, as we got to customs and I knew we were getting. I basically knew it was over. I was, I was done protecting him at that point. And they asked me a series of questions, you know, what do you do for work? Would you file on your tax return? And then eventually get down to the question where it's like, okay, so Miss O'Brien, like, we're just going to have to do a body search on you. And before we do that, we just want to know, do you have drugs on you? And I looked at the floor for so long. My ears were ringing everything. And then I just looked up at him and I said,
1: yes. What were you thinking in that moment? I was thinking I was safe.
0: You know, I felt safe and I wanted to get them off me. So I was actually, I felt relieved to say yes. Yeah. So what happens after that? So after that, I get formally arrested by the RCMP and then I have to go to jail for the weekend. You know, these kinds of things, you, you can't just uh, go and scrub some graffiti off a wall. All right. And you can't just call your friend to bail you out. It was such a serious charge that my, only my parents could come get me. Because they had to like claim to be in a surety, so I had to live with my mom or my dad until the case had you know gone
1: through the courts. So did you know right away that you were in serious trouble? Like, w- I guess I'm wondering when did the reality fully set in?
0: So the reality really started to set in that this was a huge deal. Actually, came after I'd been arrested, um, and it wasn't until months later uh, when I, after meeting with my lawyer, he was talking about prison time. Like I was like, oh, like, what can I do to like just make this go away? Right. And just because I again, you don't you learn along the way. So when they're like prison is going to be a mandatory part of the this process. And that's when I, that's when I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> so, I mean, at that time, it was very, very daunting, a big mystery. And it was all just kind of like this is all just going to go away. This is like I can explain, you know, how this happened. And at the end of the day, I brought drugs over the border doesn't matter how it happened and i brought a cocaine over the border which is very bad and i brought a decent amount of it over actually i didn't actually bring a lot of it over compared to what the actual smugglers (laughs) bring over like i was just obviously a mule like a distraction so that someone like someone else could have possibly been on that plane like a professional with way more so that i was just this like disastrous distraction that was obviously obviously doing something wrong
1: Okay, okay. So walk me through the timeline after you were arrested.
0: So following my arrest at the airport, I had to spend the next two and a half years on house arrest as my case fell below the courts. And very early in this process, I pled guilty, but there's still like so many times you have to go. And so my final um, court date was on January 16th, 2018. And that was when I surrendered to the court after pleading guilty
1: to importing. So I got a four-year sentence. So four-year sentence was—is that common? Was that considered lenient? Um, it was considered the
0: most lenient that I could get, given the fact that prior to this year they had mandatory minimum sentences. Hmm. So it didn't matter, like really, your your prior circumstances or anything like that. Like i I did have a good job and I had great, like a great family and stuff, but I also pled guilty very early. So if you go to trial and you're still found guilty, then you can get more years. But because of like a bunch of factors, I got the mandatory minimum, which was, they it goes about two years per kilogram.
1: When you were under or house arrest for two years while you were awaiting sentencing, what happened? What did you do? Are you allowed to go to work at that point?
0: Yeah. So I still had my company, but it was still, I felt like I was just on edge the whole time. I didn't know if there were people coming after me. I couldn't talk about the court case. So it was like I was just stifled with this anxiety for two and a half years, um, So the first little bit, like, it did not go well. You know, it was very difficult for my family and I because there was just so much that we didn't know. It was an entirely different world, so there was a lot of stress. And I actually got arrested again because I broke my house arrest conditions because I was just – at the time, I smoked cigarettes, and so I went out to get cigarettes and got arrested again. So my mom bailed me out again. I was able to get bailed out again, but I talked to my lawyer, and he said – if, if you mess up again, they're not going to let you out until this is finished. So I would spend the rest of that time in detention. And he's like, Emily, like we know that you're, that you're a good person. Like it's, it's in your past. It's in, it's even in your current, like you run a great company, but they're, they're not going to let you out of detention mm. if you mess up again. And so that was when I was like, okay, I was done playing the victim. I was kind of done being mad. I, and I kind of re-harnessed all those feelings of anger and wanting revenge into like, feelings of, okay, I'm going to do something good here. I'm not going to let this beat me. Mm.
1: Um, And so you now entered a plea bargain, right? At this point where now you've entered a plea bargain for four years. Yeah. Where do you go to prison? How does this happen? What time was this? This was
0: January 16th, 2018. Mm -hmm. That was the day that I surrendered to the court. So I'd known at this point that I was going to prison. I was ready to take it on. I was going to see it as like a kind of like a rehab I was ready. I was like, okay, today's the day. So I gave my mom like the gift of sobriety that day. And I knew that I was going to go away for a while. And so I get there and, you know, you're processed. You're given a bag of stuff. Like here's, like, here's your sweatpants. And like, so I was in medium, a medium security facility. Mm-hmm. And so I was li- actually living in a house with other inmates. And so we actually cooked all of our own food. Um, But that first day, it's like you're dragging your bag out. You're walking by all the houses. And it's like I was like going to Calvary or something, you know. It's just <laughs> everyone's looking out their windows at you. And as I get to the house that I was assigned to live in, there's about 17 or 18 houses, I think. And they all all have like 10 to 12 people. And then the a girl just opens the door. And she's like, hi, you must be Emily. And I was like, yeah, hi. <laughs> so it wasn't I wasn't really afraid because he's everyone there was really, really nice and I didn't get myself into any trouble. Like, obviously there is violence and but it's all around, like, drugs or relationships or certain crimes, etc. So, um, I didn't fall under any of those categories and, like, I definitely knew that I had privilege and just seeing everyone else's experience it was was so eye-opening for me because I I was really shown
1: how fortunate I was. We'll be back with Emily after the break. So how did your time in prison lead to comeback snacks?
0: Yeah, so I went in there, um, and this this didn't happen right away, but as I started to talk to more and more people about just life in general, we realized we all had like the same anxieties about re-entering the workforce, and if we were even worth it. Uh, Just because when you're in prison, they don't tell you anything good about you. They just tell you what a piece of garbage that you are. And so a lot of us didn't even have the confidence, but I... I saw so many people in there that were in there that were just so nice and kind and creative. Like there's chefs, there's artists, there are mothers in there, in prison. Um, food brought people together because we made all of our own food. We had access to a very limited list of grocery items, and so we got we got like an allowance on this limited list. So you could buy. Things from Canada's Food Guide. So we got, I think, $36.01 to spend on groceries a week. And so on that list, yeah, it was like bread, eggs, butter. There's a bunch of spices. There's pasta, frozen items. And one of those items on that list was a spice called lemon pepper and another spice called dill. Pretty popular, pretty well known. Um, and then so we would get these spices from our grocery list. Um, and then we could also buy things off a canteen with our own personal finances, And so I would buy popcorn kernels because I loved popcorn so much. And popcorn was always one of my favorite snacks. You know, some people would suggest their recipes and then I'd make my own. And that was when I kind of put two and two together. And I was like, maybe I can use my entrepreneurial past to build something, to build a, not to build something, to build a popcorn company where I can employ other people that had also been in prison to showcase the talents and to showcase the second chances that we all are, are worthy of.
1: So you have this idea. When did the business officially start? Was it after you got out of prison?
0: So I was released in December of 2018. So I had to live in a halfway house. Um, and I also you know, had to get a regular job because, as we all know, entrepreneurship doesn't exactly pay you a lot in the first uh, couple of years. It's, it's very difficult. And the, um, the parole officers don't exactly want you being an entrepreneur either because sometimes when you're an entrepreneur and you've been to prison before, you can kind of get back into the same bad business, as I say. Totally. (laughs) Um, So I actually worked at the gym. And through my time at the gym, I was able to connect with other people because going to the gym and starting to reclaim your life in terms of health was part of my journey as as well. And so I would talk to people and I would run into former teachers that I went to high school with and started talking in classes about my experience. And then I would also go to the bulk barn so then that was like the that was how I kind of started off af- after getting released into the society but then building the business wise or building the business I would source my kernels from bulk barn I would go and like scoop in so many and then I'd try with all, all these different spices it's a plug for bulk barn at this guy <laughs> 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 I could say um but yeah and then I would try different spice combinations and so uh, initially we had like 10 flavors. We had so many, or maybe it was more, but like, I would just try out different flavors and there would be no like set list that we'd have anytime. Like I would just go and make concoctions from spices that that I got from that store. And eventually we were able to narrow down what, like which ones worked, which ones didn't, but we were packaging it all ourselves. Mm. Yeah. So I worked, um, I, um, we rented out space at a commercial kitchen. I also knew that if I worked on this and if I worked on this mission, it would also help like showcase like the skills. And at this point I didn't have any employees yet, but I wanted to hire people. We actually had our first hire within six months. And it was someone that was a gentleman that had actually gone to prison um, out in Kingston. And so then he was on our team, like packing and everything like that. And things went, went really well. We had um, a number of organizations that would donate their space at events so that you don't have to pay the event fees. We had someone that donated a bunch of labels for us because all these things add up all these costs add up and someone like actually bought a popper for us like then these are complete strangers I, they, but um and then they started to say how my story really helped them or helped their family go through something because just because you go to f- physical prison doesn't mean that you haven't struggled in your life or made mistakes mm. and so taking accountability and ownership and helping others are I think essential elements of any comeback
1: I mean starting a business in general is a whole big thing in of itself. But you just got out of prison. So were there any specific obstacles you were facing? So
0: parole became was one of the most difficult times to run the business because I had to get letters from schools on letterheads and just to go speak there. And I had to ask for special permission to leave the city, Hamilton. And, you know, you had to ask a certain amount of time you had to fill out paperwork and then they had to call and confirm you had to you had to call halfway house every time you went from one place to the next. So I was going to like 10 different places a day, maybe more. And, but also part of that, you had to call from a landline. So I'd be out like at a co- country market, realizing that like I just finished my last meeting of the day and now I have to find a landline to <laughs> call from. Mm. So I'd be going into, into like Starbucks, being like "Hi, oh, can I use your landline? It was, it was kind of embarrassing too. I got actually written up one day because I forgot to call from a landline before Five o'clock or something like that. And it's an incident report. Meanwhile, I was build, out building my business um all day. So, and then when I wanted to hire, before you're released, you have to go for a parole hearing, right? And then so I talked about my plans of all this and the parole board of Canada, which is a different set of individuals as like compared to the ones that actually manage you in society. I said this to the parole board of Canada. This is what I want to do. They approved it. And then when I got out, my parole officer she's like i don't want you doing this and i was like well what do you mean this is the whole point this is the whole point of hiring the formerly incarcerated after kind of going back and forth and fighting tooth and nail um she eventually agreed to let me hire people that were actually done their sentence
1: because
0: hmm. um, they do the system does have this something it's you're like not allowed to associate with other people that have records but in my parole hearing i had gotten permission to to pursue this this avenue with comeback snacks and so that kind of changed when I got out so it was like about three, three or four months of just going back and forth and um, eventually um, she approved it and then uh, I was just so happy that day because I could that was like the one thing I cared about I loved the popcorn but I cared about the people that I spent time in prison with and people that had been incarcerated because I, I know how hard it is mm. um, and I could see it and I could see how it can just bring you down so much and everyone deserves like a fair shot at life despite you know the, the mistakes that we do
1: make I want to talk about growing and scaling the business. How did you go about finding and surrounding yourself with the right people?
0: So by that time, I had a great business partner. He's been divy and everything like that, so he knew how to do, do like the spreadsheets and the projections. Like that's not my cup of tea, to be honest. But you need you need both of those things. You need marketing. You need creative. You need PR. You need, and that was everything that I was good at. And I, I knew that I could help so many people that way. But I also knew that I. Didn't really know how to do that other stuff. I mean, I could teach myself, but I knew that having him was was an essential part of of growing this business. And so I guess from that point on, after we moved from the commercial kitchen, we moved to a local grocery store kitchen. Mm. And they were like, hey, um, we know that you have a social media background. Why don't you help us out with our social media and we'll give you the kitchen space for free? Mm. So it was like another little form of bartering where it's like we are both sharing value. It just shows how many people were so passionate about about this project, uh, people that I knew, people that I didn't know. And then, so after that, this is 2020, we actually found a co-packer so that you can scale because we couldn't scale in that little kitchen. Like I remember we'd be like sometimes like leaving with like garbage bags full of like clear garbage bags full of popcorn and going up to like the post-cereals office because people and someone in the neighborhood worked there and then they wanted us to share their story and everything like that. So... It, w- it went awesome when we were started to be in, I think about a hundred, probably about a hundred stores at that point. And then after we got the co-packer and you have all these like special labeling requirements, you can get into more stores. So then we were able to pick up to work with a distributor. <laughs> um, so that was the Neil brothers now known as John Luca Neal. Mm. So they were awesome. Um, now we got co-packers, we can scale and we have distribution.
1: What kind of work has Comeback Snacks been doing to help more people like yourself who've been to prison?
0: Yeah, sure. So, basically, the ethos of Comeback Snacks was building a company that employed the formerly incarcerated to prove that we were worthy of employment and and had skills and passion and talent. Um, So, we set an example like this through our internal company. Like we're still pretty small now, Um, so we knew that in order to scale this mission, we had to work with other organizations. So now we work um, with the John Howard Society. They're on something called their Fair Chances Pledge, and other employees can take in and say, we are going to be willing to hire people that have, you know, that have been formally incarcerated. And I also um, recently have been working with the Ministry of Labor as well. So, yeah, just making those big changes and, and working with organizations that can help make those big changes to really create
1: impact. I know that the reaction that you've described, a lot of people were supportive, right? But was that always the case? Was there some people that were kind of, was there negative reaction that you got to? Oh,
0: of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the first article that came out, it was like when it was shared on Facebook, you know, I was talking the talk, but I hadn't had the chance to walk the walk yet. So people were like, oh, no, like, just keep her in jail forever. You know, like those classic comments that are just whatever. So like, obviously, it sucks that first day, but then I was like, no. No, just wait. Just you wait. And so as I started to build a business, those comments started to to die off. But, you know, every time someone with like a significant following would post, I think John Tory posted about me on Twitter. And I was like, oh, God, here we go. And I was up all night just mm-hmm. like worried about these like mean comments that were going to come in. And they actually were pretty outnumbered by the nice ones. So, mm.
1: <laughs> You have an incredible sense of humor about your story that <laughs> I haven't seen very many people have about stories like yours. Where oh. does
0: that come from? Um cuz life's too short not to laugh about certain things and laughter is a form of healing mm. I think so and I'm just not a I'm just not a angry person I was angry at the time but then I was like this isn't me and it was eating me alive and I was like I have to find ways to source joy and, and jokes and and all that stuff and cuz it when you laugh together whether you're in prison or you know just getting out of some sort of disastrous incident you know it can actually help you heal from that faster
1: was that always there? That sense of humor?
0: Um, not when I got arrested. No, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah. not. I was, I was mis, I was definitely miserable and angry for like a long time because I, had, I felt so misunderstood and I felt like I wanted revenge on this person. I didn't want to take accountability yet, and so mm. there was very little laughter that happened. But then once, once that moment hit, where I was like, okay. Enough with the funny business. Like, stop playing. Like, I didn't. I didn't think I pled the, pled the victim that much, but I knew that I was still playing it. Like, blaming it all on him and everything like that. So once I was done with that, then I was able to forge ahead and and meet people that brought joy to my life. And then I found a purpose that brought joy to my life. And then a and building comeback snacks brought brought joy
1: and humor. Tell me where about where the business is now. Um, you know, the company size, number of employees, that kind of a thing. Where are you now with the business?
0: So we we have about five employees. Because we have like distributors who have employees. We have our co-manufacturer who has employees. And so we, we're still a pretty tight team. Um, but we're in about 800 stores now. And we just, so that's across Canada. Wow. Mostly central to Eastern, but we, our distributor, the Neil Brothers, um, they just partnered with another distributor out west. Um, so now we have like the entire Western corridor that has opened up for us in order to, to get product there, like, at a normal price as opposed to like we would ship it out ourselves to certain stores and like the shipping would just be ridiculous right so we didn't want to continue to pursue that when the consumer would have to pay an unfair price for the product due to the shipping costs um, And then we're also in a couple stores in the. US we have we do e-commerce we do we're in Scotiabank Arena we're gonna be in the CN Tower next week so, Wow yeah so, congrats yeah <laughs> um, yeah museums we're in the Kingston Penitentiary Museum actually <laughs> huh? Um, I do conferences, I do like speaking engagements and then they usually order. So there's so many different channels that, um, we've been able to kind of tap into that I didn't even know existed. Mm. Even like surprisingly wineries, like <laughs> wineries and breweries like love our products. So it's, um, it's really nice to, nice to see. But the most important part is when people read the bag, But a lot of people give the bag to other people because they want them to have a comeback of their own. And -hmm. then I've gotten so many, so many emails on like how just sharing the story has helped them. And then I'll meet, I'll talk to people if I can, even if they're a complete stranger. Like that's important to me is hearing other people's stories. and um, Because when you're doing a speaking engagement, no one's going to want to put up their hand and say... Personal things that you know they might have happened to them, but then I'll talk to them after the sh- after the presentation and things like that. Work with different groups. Work with women that are coming out of prison. Um, I run workshops, so there's like lots of lots of things that I do to help spread this message. And it's not just through the popcorn, but it kind of it is through the popcorn, but it expands um, so far beyond that.
1: Have you talked to him, the guy that <laughs> was your drug smuggling <laughs> friend?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we um. He reached out to me right after we got arrested and I wasn't supposed to talk to him at that time, but I did because I just had no one else to talk to. And I, I just needed to talk to him about what the heck happened. So, um, but then as I went to prison, I was like, no, this, this person like took advantage of you incredibly over and over again. So at this point, I don't need to speak a word to him, but there was one thing that I did do that was forgive him because I didn't mm. want that anger and hostility to take over. My like headspace, right? And and it, uh, until I actually forgave him, it, it was like there was always, there was like this little little piece of revenge that was creeping in, right? But then I, I found a sweet revenge instead, and that was building something that's good, not something that's that's bad.
1: What's he doing now? Did he have to serve time as well?
0: He did. So he actually went a lot later, um, because he kept pleading not guilty and not guilty, and then I think eventually he pled guilty. So he was on bail for about four years, as opposed to my two and a half. And then he served the same amount of time. So he actually went in right when it was COVID. So, I mean, yeah, I just wish him the best in his life. And I don't know, I, I can't, I don't, I don't have the energy to hate people.
1: Mm. Thanks to Emily O'Brien for joining us on the next episode of Better For It. Putting myself in the position where I was volunteering for a year, working part time at a coffee shop. I didn't have any money and I needed to make money somehow. and. I could see my friends working at startups and working with software, and it was clearly a path to be able to just make a living for myself Mm. when I found that teaching was a delayed path with respect to making money. That was Pete Smolik, founder and CEO of the popular gambling research platform Props.Cash. Pete and I chat about how his business was born out of a failed venture pivoting a product to a completely different audience and the sports betting boom Canada is currently experiencing. Better For It is produced by Kyle Fulton. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with all your friends. I'm Timur Durrani. Talk to you soon.